Hello and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host, Gordon Smith, and this week I'm joined by co-host Jay Shabbat to discuss the latest developments at Frontier Airlines, as well as the state of play in Japan's aviation market. Hi, Jay. How's it going? I'm well, Gordon. How are you? Doing very, very well. I cannot believe it's been a week since we spoke last. So much yeah. is going on. It, time, time moves fast, especially during earnings season. Especially during earnings season. I feel like we had a year's worth of news in January. It's barely early February. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, we should say we're talking here on Wednesday morning, East Coast, uh, New York time here. Uh, we have almost all of the U.S. carriers uh, that have now reported their Q4 results. We have one more left, which is Spirit. And by the time all of you are listening to this, we'll have uh, their results in as well. So it's a mystery to us as we're talking, but when you're listening to this, uh, we'll have a complete picture. Let me be mischievous, Jay, and ask you to get your crystal ball out. If you could predict what Spirit's going to bring tomorrow as we're recording, what would your, uh, what would your best guess be? Based on what Frontier just reported this week, I'm expecting things to be a little bit less worse than feared. I think there was this, uh, and this is a good segue into our discussion about Frontier, mm. um, keeping in mind that Frontier and Spirit have a very similar, uh, in some ways, a similar route network, definitely a similar, similar ultra low cost business model. And uh, Frontier back in when they reported their third quarter results back in October, I believe, late October, just check, yeah, correct, late October, they warned investors that the fourth quarter was going to be really ugly. And they, they said to expect a pre-tax profit margin, uh, actually pre-tax margin, no profit at all, a pre-tax margin of between negative six and negative nine percent. And for an airline that was earning double-digit margins, you know, pre-pandemic, yeah. that's yeah, that's yikes. Now, uh, as it turned out, things were much uh, less, uh, you know, grave grave than that. Uh, they they actually wound up earning a slight pre-tax margin. A few caveats. I don't want to get into you know waste waste your time with too much details here, but uh, they had a couple of uh, you know gains from from lease contracts and things like that. But 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 in any case, don't don't worry about that. the The bottom line is is that they reported a small uh, operating loss, and and I'll use I'll use operating. They use pre tax. Don't worry about the uh, you know con you know if if you want to have a discussion about that, shoot me an email. But um, we use operating margin here at Airline Weekly, and uh, the operating margin for the fourth quarter came in for them at uh, basically just below break even. Do a little bit of math if you want to add that lease stuff back in. Call it you know negative one or two percent. Uh, so not nearly as bad as feared. However, keep in mind that in the fourth quarter of 2022, Frontier earned a positive five percent operating margin, and in the fourth quarter of 2019. They earned a positive ten percent operating margin. So, in conclusion, things not as bad <laughs> as they, as feared, but still not where they need to be. And so, to answer your original question, Gordon, uh, I suspect that Spirit is experiencing some of those same trends. Um, that they have some other, uh, let's say, challenges specific to them, including, you know, the, the GTF engine is, is is really a big problem for them. Uh, and uh, so a few other things here and there, which we'll find out, you know, as we're speaking tomorrow. But uh, but I but I think the demand trends certainly, and maybe some of the cost trends, including fuel, 
perhaps better than than first feared for for both of these carriers. And interesting, you mentioned Spirit and Frontier in the same in the same sentence, Jay. In a parallel universe, those two brands could have merged. You know, you were discussing how many business similarities they have and synergies. Obviously, that isn't the way things have turned out. Uh, the JetBlue merger seemingly on its on its knees. What, yep, a, yep. what a world it could have been with Frontier and Spirit. Well, um, it's, it's uh, yeah, there's no guarantee that that, that idea isn't revived. Uh, it mm. was, in fact, Frontier was actually asked about that and CEO Barry Biffle kind of brushed it off. And, you know, of course, he wouldn't come out and say, sure, we're thinking about, you know, buying Spirit again or, or no way where, you know, he kind of kept that close to the close to the vest there. But uh, uh, that is a possibility. I mean, Frontier could could uh, could go in and, and make another bid for for Spirit. Speaking of JetBlue, we've we've heard just in the past hour as we're recording here on Wednesday that a surprise appointment, a surprise return. It's a bit like a sort of Mexican telenovela with all the uh, with, with all the comings and goings at, at JetBlue at the moment. But uh, yeah, we've got a a blast from the past, or not so distant past. Uh, who's coming back? Tell us, uh, Jay. Right. So, so Marty St. George, who was uh, with JetBlue for, for a while, um, uh, I can't remember exactly his title. I don't you have it in front of you, Gordon. I'm not sure, but he was, um, I don't know, maybe the number three or four chief revenue officer, maybe it was. And, oh, uh, he, 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 he did almost everything. I was having a quick look before we started recording. He joined the firm in 2006 as head of planning. Uh, and then by the time he, he left, he was chief commercial officer, but he was doing all sorts of other bits in between vice president of marketing and and all sorts. Really, really quite quite broad brush in terms of his remit. So he was chief commercial officer. Okay, yeah. And then he uh, left and worked for a few different airlines, I believe Norwegian and maybe uh, a LATAM most recently. And yeah, yeah, he is now now back. And remember, JetBlue is going through a management transition. That's uh, not a complete break with the past by any means. Uh, Joanna Garrity was part of the old management team. But with Robin Hayes retiring, uh, Joanna's will, will will be the CEO, and she is now kind of rebuilding the management team in her own image, so to speak, and bringing back Marty as part of that. Uh, she also appointed a new chief operating officer, um, which is a very important job at JetBlue. It's an important job at every airline, but particularly mm. at JetBlue because of the operational challenges they've had. It's a very difficult place to to run an operation. So. Uh, bit of a poison chalice, some might say. It might uh, be a. Yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, we, we, we've, we've got a term in. I don't know if this translates to American football, but in uh, in rugby, we call it a hospital pass. When you get the ball and you just know you're about to be tackled, you know, you, 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 your teammate throws you the ball and you're thinking, "Oh, why did you do that?" I, um, I have that image. Of- said, <laughs> I'm not going to go as far and say uh, you're setting anyone up for failure there, but like you say, Jay, a chief operating officer is a really tough gig in any airline, but. JetBlue more so than uh, than most at this point in time. I have this image of uh, this is a, an American fo- back to American football here, but I had, with the Super Bowl coming up, but I have a, a, an image of the new uh, JetBlue uh, operating <laughs> chief getting getting slammed by a three hundred pound linebacker, and when, you know during a snowstorm in January. <laughs> <laughs> at least American football, you wear all this sort of protective padding and stuff, right? right. You've got, <laughs> you've got, flim- yeah, you've got, you've got a flimsy little t shirt, a short pair of shorts, <laughs> and maybe a gum guard if you're lucky. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we we digress. Let's get back to Frontier because um, there's been big news out of out of Denver this week, um, and looking at the looking at the presentation that was uh, given to to investors and analysts, it was you could almost 
sum it up as a, as a three-point plan. We had network overhaul. We had a uh, an overhaul of product, and then also um, it was filed under brand and distribution, which is sort of corporate term for how they sell the products and uh, to whom. Uh, quite, 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 quite a broad initiative with some some very big revenue goals attached to it. Right, I think it's a good characterization, Gordon. I uh, yeah, they they so so really, if you want to um, yeah, and make, be be sure to if you're interested in knowing more about uh, you know Frontier and their situation, be sure to check out the upcoming uh, issue of uh, Airline Weekly because we we've got uh, uh, you know more more than we can talk about here in our limited time. But uh, very briefly, so Frontier really overexposed themselves to two markets in particular. Orlando and Las Vegas, or if you want to say all of Florida and, and Las Vegas, you could throw Fort Lauderdale in there as well, a couple other markets. And it's it's not that those are necessarily bad markets. They're actually, even even today, the demand to those markets, um, huge leisure markets, is it, pretty good. Um, it just wasn't as good as it was coming right out of the pandemic when international markets, many of them were still closed and just everybody was rushing down to Florida. Um, so I think the demand is cooled somewhat, but even more importantly, just everybody and their sister just started throwing planes into the Florida and Vegas markets, <laughs> and and they gave a statistic here. So they said since twenty comparing twenty twenty three and twenty nineteen, so total U.S. domestic capacity just just across the U.S. all markets was up four percent, but just to Las Vegas and Orlando, it was up twenty percent. And you, you could really see it in the fares. I mean, they were just some extremely low fares uh, just uh, out in the market. Um, classic situation of overcapacity. And so what they're doing now is they're, and remember, this is you know an airline that's grown a lot. They've been, they've, they've been receiving tons of new planes. They continue to get new planes and they're big planes too. I mean, they're 200 plus seat A2, A321s. Yeah. So, yeah, they got to find a place to put these things. And, and obviously, Vegas and Florida, that's just, they got to get them out of there. I guess some of it out of there, some of them out of there. So what they're really trying to do is uh, kind of multiple pronged attack here. So they're, yes, they're, they are trying to go after more what they call like high, high fare VFR traffic or family, you know, people traveling for visiting their families and friends. And that means going into, you know, markets like New York, to, or let me give you a bad example, Charlotte to Dallas three times a week. Now, the danger in doing that is that, you know, that's a hub to hub route for American. And American's not going to be happy. And they're not going to, even though, you know, they might say, okay, it's only three times a week. They're not really going to take our business traffic. But they, you know, it's, if, if American is smart, which I'm sure they are, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll retaliate. (laughs) And they're not going to make it, they're not going to make life easy for Frontier. Uh, so, and this, and that's just one example. They, you know, just tons of new routes like that, you know, that are business, kind of, you think of them as being business oriented, but they do have a leisure component to them or a VFR component to them. You know, nobody kind of joke, you know, nobody goes to Houston for vacation, but it's a huge, you know, it's a huge market. So there's people flying in and out of there to visit, visit family and friends. So there's that. And then on top of that, they really are chasing more small business traffic. So they have this brand new fare product that's geared towards you know you get uh, it's it's flexible it's you get you know, the biz fair the biz fair the biz fair yeah. and the you marketing get, must have been up all night creating that <laughs> yeah that's <it>. very clever <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a business orientated <laughs> fair what do we call it <laughs> yeah 
But uh, the so they're also they're distributing it to the GDS and they have their own internal sales force to work with small business, you know, managers, travel managers. Uh, so they're you know, they're going for that. Uh, you know, probably not a bad idea. It just I'm not sure how much, uh, you know, is, is that something that can make up for all that Florida flying? It's, it's tough to say. I mean, there's mm. it's risky. They, they've got a lot of capacity to find home, you know, a lot of planes to find homes for. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the biz fair, Jay, one of the big perks is relatively flexible rebooking. And yeah, if you're a small business owner and that meeting runs late or whatever, it's nice to be able to know that you can take that earlier flight, that later flight if you need to. But to use your Charlotte example, if you're only flying three times three a week, times a week, exactly, you, know, you, you lose a little bit of that of that magic. Um, just going back to the uh, Las Vegas and Orlando footprint, I've got the numbers here. It says. Um, in 2023, 34% of Frontier's scheduled uh, flights either originated or uh, arrived in Las Vegas or Orlando, 34%. That will now be 23% um, into next year, and those those planes and crews will be redeployed elsewhere. So quite quite transformative stuff. It's pretty bold. Yeah, it's pretty pretty big. Uh, you know, and, and these ultra LCCs, they kind of pride themselves on being, you know, just ultra flexible also in terms of, you know, hey, if the, if the, if the plane's not making money here, we'll just pull it and, you know, throw it somewhere else rather than, you know, being confined to this hub or that hub. Uh, mm. But of course, that's, you know, there it's there, there it's that's not always easy, especially with all this, you know, new capacity coming in. Um, now they do, they said that in general, the the overall supply situation in their markets has, has is getting better, is better than they expected it to be. And, and remember that peak Florida season is coming up now. We're, we're basically in it. February and March are the two strongest months of the year for Florida uh, and, and Arizona and you know, a lot of these sunshine markets, Caribbean as well. So mm. uh, the they do say that um, the o- overlapping capacity is, uh, you know, that's eased, that situation is eased a lot. And, and we can we can certainly, uh, and I think, you know, that's, that's a big reason why they're, Earnings were, you know, somewhat better than uh, than, than feared. Um, having said that, I do want to point out that their I'm looking for the number here. Their average fare last quarter was down 24. percent So wow, <laughs> that's uh, the RASM was down 15. percent That includes, you know, all the ancillaries and you're adjusting for stage, all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it's it, it was that that the revenue side was definitely very ugly, but it does seem to be getting better. And just briefly, Jay, you know, the new Frontier strategy, is, it's not just about where the airline's flying, it's about how it gets there too. Um, we saw Barry Biffle yesterday speaking about more out and back model, which is essentially where the, the local crew and the plane should start and end their day at their home base airport. Talk us very briefly through through the developments there. Right. And that's uh, something that's, you know, originally Ryanair is kind of famous for that. And, and here in the States, Allegiant is really the only... Uh, major airline that that kind of sticks to that kind of model. There, there are disadvantages to that kind of model. I mean, it is higher unit cost way of doing things. It's less efficient than, for example, what Southwest does, where they're just you know whatever the plane is moving to the next place, whatever is the most you know whatever the uh, the most optimal way is, you know, it'll just hop around the country and get the most utilization per day out of. Whereas you know you're telling the plane you got to go there and back, there and back, there and back. So there's a cost penalty for sure. But the reason why Frontier is doing it is because their operations were just so messy that they they 
the cost penalty from that, from the, from the messy ops was just getting too high. So this is an easier way to, you know, you've got your plane, you've got your crews going down to Florida in the morning. They come back at night. They, you know, do however many rotations. And then, you know, the crews are in the right place for the next morning. So it just makes it a little bit less messy. There'll be some sad hoteliers who won't be getting quite as much frontier yeah. cash from their uh, from their pilots and their crews passing through. Right. Jay, I appreciate and, your insights. On you go. On you go. Oh, yeah. Apologize. I just wanted to add one more uh, interesting thing about that that Allegiant mentioned in their call that uh, they find that uh, they have it an easier time attracting pilots um, because uh, of that out and back. You know, they, they, they're not overnighting. They're, they're sleeping in their, 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 bed, their home every night. So. Um, it just is another recruiting tool in a sense. Fantastic stuff. Appreciate your insights as always, Jay. Stick around. In part two, we will be discussing the state of play in Japan's aviation market. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host, Gordon Smith. This week, I'm joined by co-host Jay Shabbat. We have been discussing Frontier Airlines, and now we're pivoting to the east, really east. We're, we're talking Japan, Jay, and we've had some interesting results this week out from, from JAL and others. And talk us through, talk us through the, the, the key developments that our listeners need to know about. Right. Good time to talk about Japan because uh, the two airlines there, and they're essentially just two major airlines, all Nippon and Japan Airlines. They both reported uh, in, in the past few days. And uh, so let's give you some numbers. I'm going to give you the full year numbers. Uh, we'll have the Q4 numbers. Um, in fact, we had the Q4 numbers in last week's edition of Airline Weekly. And we, we talk a little bit more about Japan and the upcoming issue. So uh, uh, be sure to check that out. But I'm going to give you the full year figures here for 2023. So Go ahead. You're, 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 you're generous. You're a generous yeah, man. Right I mean, I'm, Give I'm, us the full year numbers. <laughs> so 11% is uh, the operating margin for ANA on the pod. Now, Japan Airlines came in at 8%, so a good, good three points lower. Now, that's a little bit unusual because uh, throughout the 2010s, Japan Airlines was consistently more profitable than ANA. So JAL, the smaller one, was the, was, was the, was the stronger one. Now, if you want to go further back, JAL was a real mess in the early 2000s, and they were forced into bankruptcy, and they uh, wound up going through this just really uh, intense restructuring, got their costs down, got a lot of government help, and so that was a big reason why they uh, why they were so successful successful during the 2010s. I think an underrated reason for their success as well. I I keep harping on this, but uh, Hawaii is something like 10% of their entire international network in ASM terms. And that we know from Hawaiian Airlines how good that market was in the 2010s. Now oh, that's when, true. When, when, when it's good, it's good. When it's good, it's good. But when it's bad, <laughs> like it is oh, yes. now, you that could be contributing to why Japan Airlines is, is having a little bit of a rougher time. All in the pond is less exposed to that market. Now they do fly A380s now uh, into Hawaii. But the flying still, Honu, the beautiful, the big whale, jungle. right? Yeah. <laughs> they paint, they paint it as a whale or something. So they yeah, um, there's, there's an orange one, a blue one, and another colored one. But they they, they look incredible. Nice. So they're yeah. So um, they they have those going. But but even so, they're less exposed to that market overall than than JAL is. So that probably could be helpful because we know also from Hawaiian Airlines how rough that market's been, um, and that has to do with exchange rates and this and that. And that's another topic. Um, there are. 
uh, before I turn it back to you, Gordon, um, there are just a couple of other points uh, that JAL itself made in its own earnings call that uh, help explain why they're not doing as well as ANA. So they they said um, that right now the uh, intercontinental premium is just gangbusters, just doing really well. And no surprise to anyone who listens to this podcast or reads Airline Weekly, we see that all around the world, including from the U.S. carriers, the European carriers, that intercontinental premium is just really, really strong. And as it happens, All Nippon has more business class seats on their wide bodies than JAL. Um, and they gave the exact numbers here. If I can find it, they said, yeah, they're... So this is specifically, they both fly 777-300ERs. And JAL has 64 premium seats on those. Or sorry, ANA has 64. JAL has only 49. And they said, you know, that's a big reason why we're underperforming. Because they were asked this question point blank by an animal, you know, one of the analysts over there. Uh, you know, why are you underperforming suddenly? And that, that was one of their answers. They also said that ANA is benefiting right now from very, very strong cargo demand from sh- between Shanghai and North America, which is kind of interesting. Um, and JAL doesn't didn't didn't have that exposure, and they they said, well, you know, hang on, we're gonna we're we're adding a new you know seven six seven freighter, so we'll 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 get that. So we'll, we'll we'll see if that changes. But you know, recently coming out of the pandemic, that's that's been the trend. ANA has overtaken JAL, and, and my understanding, Gordon, is that you were recently in Japan. I was indeed. I was there in December. It's a, a fascinating place, and. In terms of value, it gets a bit of a bad reputation. It's up there with Norway and Switzerland as being somewhere that you you have to save up a little bit before you go on your vacation. And even when you are there watching the pennies, uh, unless you're there for business or work and being able to do everything on that company credit card. But it's um, for inbound visitors from a lot of markets, including the UK right now. And there's not many currencies that, uh, that the pound is is strong against, but the yen is one of them just now. So it was great value. And it was really fun to be able to to enjoy Japan without keeping an eye on the purse strings like I have had to do on previous visits. And who'd you fly? I actually flew with Cathay, uh, Cathay Pacific, the Hong Kong carrier. I was only coming from Taipei. It's a relatively short flight between Taipei and, and Tokyo Narita, two and a half hours there or thereabouts. So it was, uh, yeah, very comfortable. Their economy product was good. Hagen Daz, beautiful Asian noodle dish, and plenty of red wine. So that kept me very, very happy for the two and a half hours. Now, have Unf- you have you un- ever un- flown? Un- unthinkable levels of uh, in-flight service for a, a European two and a half hour flight, or even a US two and a half hour flight. <laughs> have you ever flown uh, any of the Japanese carriers on the Pond or Jiao? I have not. Neither not. have I. I. Neither have I. It's on my wish list. They're a little trickier to. To, to reach than they used to be with the Russian airspace closure. Yeah, um, that's something we can discuss on a on a future podcast. I'm sure you've probably discussed this with, with, with Ned on earlier episodes, but the shortcut across Siberia linking particularly Northern Europe with Japan is now closed. So they're having to take some really, really long routes to the point where it's actually faster to cross the Pacific and go right up over Northern Canada and come back down that way, depending on what the winds are up to. Um, I actually think... Iberia, they're launching a, a brand new route between Madrid and Tokyo later this year. And I think most of the most of the routings, unless there's something very unusual happening with the with the winds, is to do a full round the world route. So this 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 plane will go Madrid to Tokyo, sort of the classic way around Asia, um, circumventing 
Russian airspace, and it will uh, drop off its passengers in Tokyo, pick up some more, and then head across the Pacific back to Madrid. So uh, if you were doing a round trip with them, you could go literally around the world. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And I, and I interest, you know, it's, it's the the Russian airspace thing hasn't really uh, affected ANA and JAL as much as you might think. Um, yeah, it's it's costlier and more time consuming, you know, more aircraft time to to travel to 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 Europe. Um, but the, but the fares have just gone up a lot, and they uh, as as we you know as I just explained, the um, the business class fares are just just very very profitable for these guys right now. So I um, you, you might have thought that was more hurtful than it actually is. Well, if you want to put me in JAL or ANA, business class or first class, and say, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith, you're going to have another three hours in the air with your champagne and your caviar and your delicious hospitality, I don't think that would be, uh, uh, be too hard to, <laughs> too hard to, too hard to I negotiate. I want to join you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, less, less, less comfortable and, of course, more fuel costs, more crew costs, et cetera. Um, but that's one for another, another podcast, Jay. Um, I'll put it on my my future podcast list. I've got a growing, uh, a growing selection of ideas here. And equally, if you, if listeners, if you do have any ideas for something you'd like Jay and I to discuss in a future episode, um, our email addresses, we will share those at the very end of the program. Anything else on, on Japan you want to share, Jay, before we, before we wrap up some really interesting developments with the, the low cost carriers, Air Japan, um, Zip Air going into the, into the U S. Yep. Yeah. A lot, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, you mentioned the, so Japan Air, <laughs> There's, there seems to be a, uh, I don't know. There, there's uh, these, these both of these carriers just love starting low cost subsidiaries. So Japan Airlines has three of them. <laughs> they have, they have uh, you know, Jetstar, which is a Jetstar Japan, which is a joint venture with Qantas. They have Spring Airlines Japan, which is a, uh, a joint venture with with China Spring Airlines. And then they have, as you mentioned, Zip Air, which is doing long haul Dreamliner flights to California and, and, and I believe Southeast Asia. And then I. They're starting Vancouver, I think, pretty soon as well. Uh, and you know, they said they did say that Zip Air is "quote unquote" profitable. I, you know, they don't—they're not disclosing any financial statements or anything. Um, we'll see. I think it's still early. They—they they did say that 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 the the other two, the domestic-oriented low-cost carriers, are are a bit more troubled now. Um, you know, some in some cases because of China exposure, or whatever. Um, and then all the all the pod has their own. Uh, what is it? Air Japan. Air Japan, they're, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of doing uh, uh, with, with, with 787s as well. But so far, they're really just the, the routes they've announced, I believe, are just short haul. Um, so we'll, we'll see if they wind up, you know, also copying Zip Air and going across the Pacific. Absolutely. Fascinating times. Uh, Jay, thank you, as always, for your expertise. Uh, don't forget, you can always contact us via email. My email address is gs at skiff.com. That's G for Gordon, S for Smith. And J is available at js. That's J for J and S for Shabbat at skiff.com. J, uh, I think we need to get working, get some savings in the bank, and we can uh, have that blowout JAL or ANA first class trip. How about that? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. All right. I'll get my piggy bank ready. We'll get all those pennies and dimes in there and Maybe by 2030, we'll have enough. Uh, whatever you're doing, wherever you are in the world, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.